you're in a healthy community where generosity is the norm and gracious hosting is the norm, that'll be you. Yeah. And so I think a lot of moral formation is being enmeshed in beautiful communities with norms. Hey everybody, John Mark Comer here from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to episode one of the Live No Lies podcast, a one season, six episode podcast series where I sit down with a few of my heroes, leading Christian intellectuals, and I interview them about the intersection between post-Christian culture and spiritual formation. Or put another way, how do we follow Jesus in this kind of a cultural moment? In episode one, I sit down with David Brooks. David is a New York Times weekly op-ed columnist, as well as a prolific author of books like The Road to Character and my personal favorite, The Second Mountain. He's also a political commentator and an expert in sociology on publications like NPR and PBS NewsHour, as well as a professor at Yale and all sorts of other fascinating things. They say never meet your heroes, but I had the chance to sit down with David for a few hours at his home in Maryland. And he was, in all honesty, kind of exactly what I was hoping he would be. Blisteringly smart, no surprise there, but down to earth and humble and self-effacing and curious and interested in me and the church and life and the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Before we jump in, this podcast series is brought to you by our partners at World Vision. This last year, all things 2020 and now 21 was brutal for everybody, but it was especially emotionally excruciating for pastors. I know that from personal experience, not in a kind of feel sorry for myself, though there's a little bit of that in my heart that I am getting over. But it was very hard. You spent the year caring for people in your church, and a lot of you now are feeling burned out, exhausted, and a bit beat up. Well, our partner at World Vision is called to serve the most vulnerable around the world, but they feel a call to the church at large, including you as pastors priests, and spiritual leaders. So World Vision partnered with Danielle Strickland to come up with a phenomenal new resource called Soul Care Prayer Rhythms, which is available for free on the web. It's a video series with fantastic teaching from Danielle, as well as some very good best practices to care for your soul, to open it up to the healing of God. This is all available for free if you go to worldvision.org slash live no lies with the link in the show notes. All right, here's my conversation with David Brooks. David, it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you. In your home, thank you thank for your you. hospitality. Welcome. I don't know if people can see the piano, but I'll be playing shortly. Yeah, we'll have a little short podcast break <laughs> where you can just entertain us with jazz or whatever your motif is. Right. I've been reading your column every week for many years, and so it's really a gift and an honor Thank to sit you. with you and really appreciate your time. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you, John Mark. I, uh, yeah, pleasure to meet you. I quote you in my book from a column that you wrote sometime in the chaos of 2020 last summer, and you said, over the last half century, we've turned politics from a practical way to solve common problems into a cultural arena to display 
resentments. And another column, somewhere around the same time, you know, he basically made the point that politics has become less about legislation and more about, I think he used the language of performing your zeal. And that feels like a, a fair critique that kind of cuts across partisan lines, in my opinion. But it made me think of the missiologist and kind of thinker Leslie Newbegin, who back in the 70s, as he was kind of helping people in the West understand kind of the growing tide of secularism and post-Christianity and what that could even mean, you know, he made the prediction that as the West secularized, if it continued to do so, that religion would not go away. Instead, it would just kind of get transferred over onto politics. And he warned of the rise of what he called the political religions. And I'm curious, as somebody who's covered politics for many years, sure. like, would you agree with that, disagree? In what ways is politics becoming kind of a, a quasi-secular religion for America and other Western nations? Yeah. You know, I, last week in my post-COVID life, I got to go to my first Broadway show in a long time. Congratulations. So I went to see Springsteen on the Broadway. I'm a big Springsteen guy. And so we, we all get there before, and everyone starts talking to each other because we're all part of the same church, the Church of Bruce. And <laughs> when they start telling the stories, everyone's telling the moment they discovered it. Wow. So everyone has their coming it's to like faith a, It's like moment. a born-again kind of I was moment. Born, and then we saw this, and then we saw this show 150 times. And so I, I realized, oh, it's a church. It's just a religion. We, we have a God-sized hole, yeah. <laughs> and it's going to get filled. And there are better ways to fill it and worse ways to fill it. In my view, the better way to fill it is with an actual, actual faith in God, because that gives you meaning, and it gives you truth, and it gives you a way to live, and, and it gives you somebody to love. Um, but if you don't fill it that way, you will fill it. Yes. And so Bruce is not a bad way. It's not as harmful <laughs> a way as it might be. It's a little less divisive little, than some but, of the other but, options. Right, but ethnicity for some people is their God, uh, and they'll worship at an ethnic or whatever, yeah. a racial category. Mm -hmm. The worst possible way is, is politics. And that's been shown through history. What was communism? Communism was a secular yes. faith. It was something you could assent to. It was a way of living. It, it had a vision of paradise. Yes. And it turned into a nightmare. It turned into hell. And what we have is just as bad. Politics is usually a competition between partial truths. Uh, if a liberal says equality, a conservative is going to say freedom. And they're both sort of right. And you, yeah. in politics, is really about striking the balance between when truths collide. Mm -hmm. And we should spend a lot of money this, but we can't afford it, so we find the balance. That's all it is. It's a way of settling differences across disagreement. Mm -hmm. It's not an ultimate truth. It's not a source of identity. Uh, it's not a thing that's going to give you meaning. Uh, it, you know, sometimes political services can be meaningful, right. but it's not ultimately going to fill your soul. And if you ask politics to do more than it can do, it turns into a fanaticism. Right. And so it's become a fanaticism for people who wake up. I remember years ago, and this is no knock on Fox News, but I was with a Fox executive. And at the bottom of the screen, they had a little Fox News chyron, the little thing that says Fox News. And some people would get up, turn on the TV at 8 in the morning, and they'd keep Fox on until midnight. Hmm. And the problem was that would burn into their TV screen the little Fox News would burn into the screen. And so they had to move the Chiron around so they wouldn't destroy everybody's TV sets. Wow. And so when you're that addicted, then you've made politics your idol. And as a friend of mine, Andy Crouch, he's probably not the first to say it, um, says when you, idols, at first they give you everything and ask nothing. And by the end, they ask for everything and give you nothing. 
and, and that's what happens when you idolize politics. And do you think the root of that is secularization, or is it something else, or is it just, like most things, very complex? Yeah, I think it's... I, I think mean, it's, the, the root of just so many right. people turning... Right. Politics has always been a divisive thing since our right. nation was founded, but sure. I mean, I've just never seen the level of identity that people put yeah. into it, the level of utopianism on both sides, the level of vitriol when people right. would dare to disagree. You know, it feels new to me. Right. I think it's the collapse of other identities. Yeah. So before you were in, a, you were Presbyterian and you were Episcopalian, and believe me, the Presbyterians and Episcopalians probably hate <laughs> each other, the Catholics <laughs> and the Protestants. So right. it wasn't. But identities lead to sometimes identity clash. Or you were Polish American or Italian American, and you had your ethnicity, and you were living in your Italian neighbor, na neighborhood. You knew who your people were. You knew yes. your history. But as just to take the Italian example, you probably assimilated and you moved out to the suburbs, and suddenly. You sort of knew you were Italian-American, but it wasn't the same as when everybody around you was Italian-American right. and Bubby was speaking Italian. And so that identity goes away. And so politics has leapt in to fill the void. And the problem is when it becomes your identity, to compromise your identity is dishonor. Mm -hmm. It touches on the deepest part of right. who you are. And so I can't compromise because it's dishonor. And I define myself against the other. And, and that's more or less what's happened to our politics. So, you know, I, I wish people would, you know, I cover politics. It's what I spend a lot of time thinking about it. But it's like the fifth or sixth thing I love about life. Yeah. Uh, and I wish more people would just tone that down and find yeah, other loves. Now, you came to faith later in life. This beautiful story uh, yeah. that you've spoken about, written about, of many decades as a kind of atheistic Jew coming to a beautiful expression of faith in a mature adulthood. Has that changed your perspective at all on politics, on the role of politics, on maybe its, its boundaries and its limitations? You know, obviously mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk about its potential um, to make our world a better place and our society more just, but there's yeah. not a lot of talk about its boundaries and its limitations. Yeah. Has that altered your perspective at all or, or no? Yeah, weirdly coming to faith, I think has altered a few things. Um, probably my views on life issues. Uh, one, I always thought people had a soul, but when you really think a person is a soulmate in the image of God, it changes yes. a few things, but it's had surprisingly little effect um, for this reason. I already grew up in the biblical metaphysic. I grew up with the ideas. I went to church school, a, a weird yes. background, and I went to Hebrew school. We kept kosher through much of my adult life, but I also went to Episcopal church school mm -hmm. because it was New York City. I was, you know, the choir, which I was in, was like 30% Jewish. <laughs> and so we would sing the hymns and to square it with our religion we wouldn't sing the word Jesus. <laughs> so so the volume would go down and then it would come Evangelical back. tradition, Jesus would be 10 times louder, but right, in New right. York, it just yeah. all of a sudden it just whispers. Opposite of red letter. <laughs> we were red letter Jews. Um, and, but so I grew up with the stories. And in the Jewish story, it's welcome the stranger, it's Exodus. And, but I was familiar with the Jesus story and I was familiar with Beatitudes. And so those ideas were already in my head. They were, they were wisdom literature right. that over the course of my adulthood became truth. A, a series of stories that were powerful, but that came alive. And so Exodus is not only a book about wisdom, how you form a people, but it, then it becomes something, it becomes a covenant. Yeah. Uh, and so my political views change relatively little because the stories were already there. Yeah. What I worry about is the people who aren't raised with those stories, who, who don't have it in their head, the last shall be first. I mean, I, right. the welcome the stranger, the poor are closer to God. 
I think you can get that. And the power of those stories was striking to me when people would go see that Fred Rogers movie. Yeah. And so some of it is so counterintuitive. Like there's a little boy in that movie, you remember, in a wheelchair. And Fred Rogers asks the guy, the little boy, to pray for him. And the, a journalist is following him around, a very great journalist named Tony Judd, and says, oh, that was very clever. You asked the boy to pray for you when probably most people are praying for him. And Fred Rogers said, no, the, the way he's lived, he's closer to God than I am. I need his help. And that it can be startlingly counterintuitive. But when you see the movie, you don't have to be Christian or not. You just yes. feel the power of that inversion of what seems normal. Yeah. And if you grew up in a culture that ha where faith is at least around, yes. I think you sort of absorb some of that. Something of that is there. Yeah. yeah, you know, when the Fred Rogers, there was that cascade, I think it was the documentary that came out first, right. which was really interesting because it played in like all the kind of indie theaters in yeah. Portland. It was like yeah. all this buzz, these yeah. very secular kind of right. millennial people were super into this. And what the combination of nostalgia with, yeah. you know, the father figure thing. And then there was the movie and the book and all that. And I didn't realize, like I, I grew up like with Fred Rogers there, but I didn't realize like he was a Presbyterian pastor and yeah. had permission from his denomination for that right. show to be his ministry. Yeah. And that whole thing was based very much around his, not just Christian worldview, but around his like pastoral call, you right. know? Yeah. There was a whole worldview that informed that posture he had toward the world. Right, I think about that. In, um in part, we, after he died, we had his widow over to our house for an unveiling of a portrait of him. And she yeah. was quite unlike what I expected. She was super spicy. <laughs> and super... <laughs> that actually doesn't surprise me at all with how calm he is. Yes. You know. But, you know, and this is something I think about speaking to secular audiences. Yes. So I'm a secular writer. And some, but a lot of what I do is translate ideas I've learned in the faith to the secular world. Right. And so how do you do that? So a word like sin. I, I was, wrote a book called um, The Road to Character, and I was on a TV show talking about it before it came out. And I talked about the, the struggle against sin. And I got an email from a publishing editor, not my editor, saying, you know, I, would, I love the way you talked about the book, but, but don't use the word sin. That's such a downer. Use the word insensitive. I was like, mm, I don't think insensitive really <laughs> covers sin. Doesn't quite capture the problem. <laughs> uh, but I, you think, okay, how do I use the word sin yeah. where it won't set m a lot of my readers into thinking of Puritan depravity or something? Mm -hmm. And what I came upon with the help of a guy you know, Tim Keller, was talk about disordered loves. Yeah. We all love it's a lot of things. Which is Augustine. Yeah. And, but we put some, we all mm -hmm. know love, some loves are higher. Yep. And if you tell me a secret and I blab it at a dinner party, I put my love of popularity above my love of friendship. And that's a sin. Yeah. And that way you can talk about sin without saying depravity. Or, right. And so you've got to think about how you do this in the secular sphere. And I, I tell pastors, I'm your gateway drug. I try to talk people to get them. I'm not going to convert anybody. Right. But to get the categories out there because mm -hmm. I find them useful. Like if you're out on a date, imagine the other person has a soul. And if you treat them as a soul made in the image of God, whether you believe in God or not, you'll probably treat them right. <laughs> right. Whatever happens. And so I, I say, I don't care if you believe in God or not, that's not my job. But try to believe that there's some piece of you that has no size, weight, color, or shape. And it makes you of infinite value. And that slavery is wrong because it's an attempt to insult a soul. Mm -hmm. And if you think you have that thing in you, then I don't know if it'll lead to faith or not, but It'll make doing the kind of job I do 
worthwhile. Like if I'm out there writing a story about somebody and they're just a sack of skin, yeah. what's the point? Like, why am I writing this story? And they're just meat. Or, right. You but know. if they're a soul, then the story has meaning because you're telling the story of a soul. Uh, and so I personally found that very useful in first in how to treat people, but then actually in coming to God. Like if, yeah. if somebody is a soul, well, where'd that come from? And I, in coming to faith, I had all sorts of things came to me in the wrong order. So I experienced <laughs> grace before I experienced God, which yeah. does not seem to make sense, but that's just how it happened. And I, I did not have one moment where like Jesus walked across the water and here I am, right. come worship me. It's, I didn't have that moment. I had no dramatic moments really, but it was like, right about a point where it was like you're riding in a train, every, we're just sitting here in the train, suddenly you look out the window and you realize you've covered a lot of ground. You're not where you used to be. You crossed a border somewhere. And so just gradually over years, with some accelerations, but just crossed a border. Uh, and it hasn't made it, um, I'm, I, there's a great writer who I recommend everybody um, named Chris Wyman, Christian Wyman, mm, yeah. who wrote a book called um, My, My Bright Abyss. Abyss, a beautiful, yeah. beautiful book. And he says in there, I wanted to tell you a faith was supposed to be, provide me with serenity and peace. It ain't working for me. <laughs> I, I, I assent to that. Yes. So you're at this fascinating kind of border where you, you know, you for years have been articulating kind of sociology and politics at a journalistic kind of op-ed level. Now you've come to faith and like you're doing it more and more informed by this moral, spiritual backdrop. As you kind of look at the landscape, obviously you're a 30,000 foot kind of thinker, like you look at broad themes down through history and culture. What do you see the role of religion in general and I shy away from the phrase Christianity, but whatever you want to call that, the Christian faith or the way of Jesus, in particular, in kind of America's culture moment right now, like what, what is the impetus and the onus on us as followers of Jesus? What's our, what's our role in this kind of public sphere and our very secular and very pluralistic kind of culture? Yeah, I mean, I... Um, I know there's not like a right <coughs> answer to that. Right. I'm asking you, or like, what's your take? You know, this is yeah. just a broad kind of array of diversity of opinions in the Christian tradition down through history on this right, very question. Right, right. And so it's so, one of the ones I don't really know the answer to, and so <laughs> I just ask it, it of all the smart people yeah. I know, like, what's your take? The first thing I'd say is, is just be not afraid. Yeah. What I find most troubling about many churches is the siege mentality, the sense the culture is against us. Hmm. And I always feel like when I'm at a sermon and a pastor says, the culture, yeah. I always want to stop and say, huh, stop. Yes. Why don't you go take a nap? Because <laughs> <laughs> that phrase, the culture, usually leads to a series of bad generalizations. <laughs> right. And like my job is sort of sociological, like this is what I do for a living. And I find most pastors are great at pastoring, not great at sociology. Yeah. And so don't think the whole culture is out to get you. And that siege mentality is what leads to the desperation and the fight. And, and the, the anger and the, and the anger tribalism. And the yeah, yeah, the fear mongering. And so when I look at the church, and especially mostly being in a secular world, what I see, you have what the whole world wants. You have a spiritual vocabulary. You have an ultimate story with a happy ending. Why don't you just share that? <laughs> and it's from a position of abundance. Uh, you know, I, I go to college after college, and in the secular schools, the kids are working their tails off, but they don't know why, you know? Um, and some of that's also true at a Christian college, but at least you're thinking about the problem. Yeah. And so I was 
I would go to campuses workshopping books and it, at academic places, I was teaching at Yale, and they gave me tough criticism. But at Wheaton, where a Christian school in Illinois, where my wife went, they had practical advice because they were used to transcribing moral principles to actual life. Yes. And that's what the church, and church gives you, the sense of living with intentionality. Mm -hmm. And so that's not only the faith, it's also like, how are we gonna do marriage? Well, there's actually a big literature yes. on how you do marriage. Uh, and all the meaningful questions that tend to not get asked in our society get asked and people think, how do I do Sabbath? And, and so there, there's all that. Yeah, there's thousands of years of, 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 of chokmah, of wisdom. Yeah. You know, you and, think about the book of Proverbs, yeah. like how it's interacting with, you know, right. all these different pagan yeah. sources of wisdom and it's becoming this compendium of just kind of basic yeah. wisdom for living. And some of it is wisdom and some of it is ritual. Like in my Jewish background, let's say you met a woman whose husband had died yesterday and you wanted to give her some comfort. The first thing in your mind would probably not be, we're going to throw a party at your house for the next 10 nights and you have to host it and feed us all. That would not be your natural go-to piece of advice. But the Jewish Shiva rituals, where the community gathers at the home mm -hmm. of the bereaved, is genius because yeah. it gives everybody something to do yeah. and a community to rally around. And there are all sorts of deep, wise things embedded. And when you're sitting shiva with somebody, you allow them to talk about the dead if they want or not. Or not. And so there's just all that wisdom about how to actually live that's embedded not only in the, what we read in the Bible, but yes. in the practice. And how to live together. Right. Not just at an individualistic level, but yeah. at a communal level. Right. You know, your last few books, which have been so good, I'm thinking of Road to Character and The Second Mountain, have essentially been about, you would never call it spiritual formation, because it's, you know, again, to a secular worldview, but moral formation, the formation yeah. of human personhood, of, of yeah. souls, of the yeah. growth, and which is like, that's the question that gets me out of bed in the right. morning. As a pastor, I'm really not interested in, right. you know, organizing community stuff yeah. or non-profit, you know, that's right. important stuff, but... I think what gets me up out of bed is how does the soul make its journey back to God and how does it expand and enlarge in its capacity for love? You right. know, like that's, right. that's the question that right. I, gets me out of bed in the morning. And you've written extensively about that yeah. and about kind of moral formation or spiritual formation, if you want to call it that. And you've also written about kind of the, the growing absence in, our, in the culture. <laughs> you can review the internet. <laughs> of kind of like good streams of moral formation for an emerging yeah. generation. You know, as the saying goes, all education is formation, right. which is true. But increasingly, as you know, somebody with kids in the public educational system, like other than some very high values for tolerance and diversity and right. equality, there's not a lot of moral formation that goes on. Right. So a big part of me wonders, is, is that a part of the role of the church? Or what do you see as you look forward to, in your preferred future for America, what does the moral formation of people look like? What are the best yeah. mechanisms and means for that? Is it yeah. government? Is it local organizations? Is it churches? Is it families? Like, as you think about that deeply as solutions, not just problems, yeah. what do you see? Yeah, you know, I'm struck in Germany and the Netherlands, or in Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries, mm -hmm. around 1870, they said, we're teaching kids we're not doing moral formation. And the Germans being the Germans, they have a word for this. It's Bildung. It means moral formation. They have a word for everything. Yeah. But we should have a word for moral formation. Like right. it's, it's a problem. It's a sign of yes. something. We don't even have a word for this. And so they really did it through the arts, literature, and local culture. And it worked for them. They, they, their idea was to 
have a happy society, people should be, have, be able to have complex interior lives. Uh, and so I guess my, the, the, the two books you just mentioned have different theories, which have a piece of the truth. The one is, The Road to Character was about confrontation with sin, it's about self-confrontation. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding what's your key weakness and how you're gonna work on that weakness. Uh, the, um, and so I mentioned in that book, um, Dwight Eisenhower, yeah. his key weakness was anger. He was an angry guy. And so he worked on it every day and slowly built up a character which was garrulous and happy and not hating. The second book, The Second Mountain, it's about desire. It's about loving the right things mm -hmm. and elevating your desires just mostly by admiring. Like, yeah. One of the people who was important in my life, early life, this guy named Wes, we were at a camp together and he was just a beautiful human being and he turned into an Episcopal pastor and I was attracted to his kind of beauty. Uh, and it had a lifelong impact. He died about five years ago. Um, so we're attracted to beauty. And I think now the third part of the answer I would give is that we're decent at learning stuff. We're fantastic at imitating. If you put us in a community with a certain sort of person or a certain sort of norms, we'll, we'll emulate. Yes. So if you hold up an example, if you're sitting in ancient Greece and Homer says, Ulysses, Odysseus, you think those guys are so cool. I want to be like them. Yeah. So you begin copying. But if you're surrounded by a community where you behave like, say, the Brits in a stiff upper lip way, like, that's just the way you are. Yeah. The, my kids, when they were little, watched this show, Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm -hmm. And there's a little phrase in there star. that, yeah, that was so British. It was one of the engines says, it isn't wrong, we just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, that's so British, yeah, like, yeah, it's just not who we are. And so if you're in a healthy community where generosity is the norm and gracious hosting is the norm, that'll be you. Yeah. And so I think a lot of moral formation is being enmeshed in beautiful communities with norms. You know, one of the things that I grew up in the kind of evangelical Protestant wing of the church and one of the things that, that tradition, there's many good things about it, but one of the, the bankruptcies of that tradition is its absence of saints. Yeah. You know, you think of other church traditions, the Orthodox, the Catholic, and others, yeah. there's just like the saints play a key yeah. role. I spend, right. you know, about a night a month, there's this Benedictine Abbey yeah. that's about less than an hour drive away from Portland. So I'll go out and just take a day in prayer yeah. whenever possible once a month. And they have this like daily reader, this Catholic daily reader that, you know, is next to the bedside table. And I don't think I've ever been there and had in their, you know, very complex Roman Catholic church calendar, right. it not be the feast day of yeah, some right, saint. Right, and sometimes right. I recognize the name and sometimes yeah. it's like some obscure person. I never don't know the person from Adam, but like there's such a high value as a Jesuit priest that... I'll text with regularly and he'll just yeah. say, oh, happy whatever day to you. Yeah. I have no clue, I'm just, it's Thursday. But for him, it's the day of a saint. And I, yeah. I just wonder if the shift from saints to celebrities yeah. has bankrupted our culture in some way. I was way. just thinking the exact same thing because um, uh, I'm, I'm on TV, so I'm known somewhat. Right. Uh, and as I entered the Christian world, first I would go to church and I would get there and everybody would run and introduce me to everybody else. And then when you pause to shake hands with people around you, people would come up and then I'd leave 
and then they'd come to me to talk. And usually I'm great with that. I'm totally great with it. But I was going to church. I was new to the faith. Yes. I just I wanted a spiritual it's an awkward experience. Position and, yeah. For you. yeah. And so then I started arriving at church after the service had started and leaving before it ended. And I, that made me feel lonely. And so I thought, wow, this community is way more celebrity obsessed than any place I know. Interesting. And it, that remains true. And I've always wondered why, why is it some sense of inferiority complex or marginalization? Why, why the draw to celebrity? And frankly, it's fine if you're going to talk to me. I'm really genuinely happy. But it gets harmful when you turn people into Ravi Zachariah. Yeah. And the power of celebrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I never made the connection. Maybe they need some saints, some real, yes. some real people. Some real to saints to. to aspire <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. And I um, was teaching, and one of the books I teach when I can is The Long Loneliness by Dorothy Day, mm-hmm. who is not a saint, but I hope will be one soon. Yes. Uh, and so there are 24 kids in the class, and at the last term, we read 14 books in this class. And the last qu- essay question is, pick one of the 14 books we've read and apply it to a problem in your own life. Of the 24 kids, completely secular, mostly, tw- 19 picked Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness, mm-hmm. when they could have picked Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, yes. any of Plato, yes. they, they went for her. Uh, and they went for her, A, because her faith was so emotionally drenched. And I think there's a great hunger for emotional experience to, to understand your own emotions, especially at a place like Yale. Um, but because of just the extraordinary way she was committed to a way of life. Yeah. And surely devotion to the poor. Uh, and so we need those exemplars. I mean, if you're going to fail, don't fail because you had an inadequate ideal. Yes. Have a high ideal. Yeah, it's interesting. The older I get, the more time I spend, find myself reading biography and memoir. Yeah. which I didn't have a large draw to when yeah. I was younger. And I think if it's well-written and if it's honest, and there's a lot of biographies, a lot of Christian biographies that aren't honest, right. but if it's honest, it does two things. It, it, ri- it raises the horizon of possibility for me on human personhood. Yeah. Like, wow, this, this is what can happen to a soul over right. a life arc of 60, yeah. 70, 80 years. Right. Like, this, is, this is the capacity of a soul, you right. know? And it just raises my horizon of what, what is possible. Same thing happens to me when I spend time with elderly people yeah. who have been devoted not 10 yeah. years or 20 years, but 60, 70, 80 years to moral formation, spiritual right. formation, right. whatever. But it also humanizes like right. reality because it, it's literary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody ends in this heroic burst of kind of Thor right. yeah. glory or whatever. And so whoever, pick your hero of choice, you know, Nalan or right. Willard or Day, like they all had their shadow side. They all had their demons. Right. They all right. had their literary moments of ending, you know, yeah. ambiguous kind of moments of ending. But there's something about that combination that both humanizes my life, makes me feel normal and not as neurotic, but also like raises the horizon of possibility. And I just feel like we've lost, a yeah. lot of us have lost yeah. that. Yeah, I mentioned I'm working on this book on, on the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. So I read a lot of psychology books, mm-hmm. to get even psychology, yep. but I also read a lot of memoirs. And so the psychology books are interesting. The memoirs are blow you away. Yeah. Like each individual human life is way more interesting than a group of human lives. <laughs> and so like I just finished a memoir, I think her name is Elaine Gornick, it's about her mother. It's called Fierce Attachments, I think. And so they lived in the Bronx, in New York, in the 50s. Her mom was the only one in their building who had a happy marriage. That was her identity. Husband dies of a heart attack. She tries to throw herself into the grave at the cemetery, at the funeral. She tries to open the casket and jump in. She spends the next 40 years of her life 
as a widow, as a professional yeah. widow. Like, who does that? But each individual life has those moments that defy anything you could put in a category. Yeah. And so we've built universities that are really good at studying people in general, a psych department or an yep. econ department. But how do you get to know one person? Uh, that's a very different proposition. And it, it's, a, it's a, an art I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. And the complexity of each human soul that just transcends the tribal categories. Yeah. You know? and, and one thing I've learned, first you have to approach them the way the Bible teaches you to know. Like in the Bible, the word know mm. is not only to yes. study, it's to fall in love Relational. with, to have sex with, have, yep. conven have covenant with. It's like a very emotional, like the distinction which we draw between reason and emotion, they did not draw. Yes. And they were right and we were wrong. Yeah. And so you have to, and then you have to accompany, let them, you know, you approach a person the way D.H. Lawrence wrote this, the way a deer approaches, or the way you would approach a deer in the forest. Yes. Just gently and softly. Yeah. And you show empathy. And then finally, just ask them questions. One of the things I've learned from my research is that you, we think we can take somebody else's perspective. I can guess what's going on in your head. Nope, can't do that. Yeah. Like, they study this now, and the average time when someone's talking with the other person, and they ask, well, what is that other person thinking? And they can do this later. Um, we get it right about 20% of the time. Some super socially attuned yes. people get it right 50%. A lot of people get zero. And if it's a closer person to you, you get a little more, uh, but you're still not very good. And then yeah. the thing I learned in the research is that husbands and wives get worse at knowing what the other is thinking the longer they're married. Wow. And that's because they really were in love when early in the relationship. And so they put in their head a model of the other person, yep. but then they changed. Yep. And the model was still there, but the other person is somewhere else. And they have an interpretive grid now by which yeah. they... Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so re really the key is have conversation. It's interesting, the intersection there too, between what you're talking about with relational ways of knowing and learning another human soul and moral or spiritual formation. You know, I've been thinking a lot the last week or two about the one time that eternal life is defined in the New Testament is by Jesus himself. And it's like not how most Protestant theologians yeah. would define eternal life. There's nothing about life after death or how yeah. long that lasts. You know, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you. Yeah. And so it's a relational knowledge right. of God, an interactive experience of the Trinitarian yeah. community of love that we call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's what eternal life is. Yeah, and in Jesus' mind, it begins now, not at death. Interesting. Yeah, no, and we so see that, through a glass darkly, and the, yes, we will exactly. see face to face. And, you know, Jesus' whole kind of theory of spiritual formation in John 15 and about, is this relational form of, relational connection yeah. is the mechanism by which human persons are formed in that metaphor, into yeah. fruitful people, you right. know? And it's interesting in that context that the disciples don't recognize the risen Christ, that yeah. they're the dramas of non-recognition, yes, which pervade the Bible. You know, we're at this interesting moment in culture kind of coming out of COVID and, you know, some of the cultural anarchy we're experiencing and yet lots of optimistic signs of life and renaissance. Right. So I was, I was texting with a couple pastor buddies, you know, last night as I was in my hotel room, thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sit with David Brooks. Uh, what would you ask him? You know, my buddy John Tyson, you may know from New York City, I do said, ask him if he thinks there'll be another greatest generation. Hmm. And I was thinking about that uh, right after I texted with him. Uh, we were walking 
around, I'd never been to DC before. And mm. so I just did like a, a quick, you know, three hour walking tour. And I was walking through the World War II Memorial and walking through the section of the Pacific and my grandfather fought in the Pacific. And just this, there's a, feels almost like a sacred space. That some, yeah. it, it touched me at some level emotionally just because yeah. my own experience and the role of that war in history. And it got me thinking about that question. So how, yeah. how would you answer that? Do you think there will be another you said recently yeah. in, a, in a column, this generation could not have won World War II. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was you on a bad day or, <laughs> yeah. you know, or a I sort of believe opinion. that, I guess. Um, they had some advantages, and they had a lot of disadvantages. Um, you know, their advantages was they were really raised in a culture of, of humility. Yeah. A culture of, and Biden was raised in this culture, I'm no better than anybody else, but nobody's better than me. Yeah. That, and the idea of putting on airs was really looked down upon. Uh, now we're fine with demonstrating our superiority. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Performing your zeal yeah, on Instagram. I, um, I was driving home. I wrote about this in one of my books, listening to NPR, and I listened to the show that was broadcast live on VJ Day when the Americans discovered they won World War II. Mm. And at that moment, Bing, Ho, Bing Crosby, this yes. movie star, gets up, says, we've just learned, we've just been told we've won World War II, but at the moment like this, we don't feel proud. We're just humbled. We're just glad we got through it. We're no better than anybody else. And I get in, turn on the TV, watch football game, see a defensive player tackle a guy after a two-yard game. He's like doing this victory dance. It was like, <laughs> I just see a bigger self-puffing victory dance after a two-yard game than winning World yes. War II. Um, and so they had that sense. But on the other hand, I don't want to, if you were black in World War II, yep. you were, it was not so great. And, you know, you look at the number of prisoners we shot. Yep. Just like, so it's not all. Dresden, all the stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, and the... I mean, it really was raw racism during the war, both against the Germans and Germans yeah. and Japanese. So, um, I have some more, I have some things I think are great about the generation. If I can make generals, generalizations generationally, one is the emotional openness. Uh, You're I, talking I, about of the current generation. Of the current generation, yeah, it's really a gift. Uh, and they're not repressed, and they demand when people like me are with them, um, emotional openness too. They just, yeah. you, they're, they're going to demand it. Um, I think the, the mental health, I don't quite understand what's happening yeah. with depression. But depression is really running through not only every generation of America. I wish I understood why that is. I imagine that's something to do with loneliness or social disconnection. But it's really a startling thing when you go to every college and the mental health facilities are swamped. Yeah. Um, and the teenage suicide rates are skyrocketing. Am I hearing you say that's part of the role that you think the church and followers of Jesus can play is in building small local communities of love, welcome, ritual, moral formation? You know, I, I think a question that I'm asking right now is in a culture that is so fractured and fragmenting, that is so polarized between right and left, and in a kind of marketplace of ideas in Western culture that is pluralistic, um, as followers of Jesus, we come with... Uh, I, hate to, I hesitate to use this language, but with exclusive claims, you know what yeah, I mean? That Jesus sure. is Lord is our central claim. That's an exclusive claim right. because by, by de facto, you know, that means Caesar is not or Biden is not or whoever is yeah. not. And that doesn't make us not good citizens. In theory, it should make us better citizens right. of this kingdom, of this, this nation. But there is a tension there between right. the exclusive claims we make about Jesus and living in this open, pluralistic, you know, non-religious, secular kind of right. broad cultural milieu yeah. and so i think one of my fears is how do we hold stay faithful to our faith in jesus our discipleship to him without just adding to the polarization and the division 
-hmm. You know what I mean? How do we contribute yeah. to unity without just kind of turning everything into a Unitarian kind of kumbaya -y, Yeah. you know? It, I, early in my journalist career, I interviewed Jeff Immelt, who was the CEO of General Electric. Mm -hmm. And he said, when I became CEO, I thought I had to play down my Americanness because we're a global company and I'm all over the world. A couple of years in, I realized they want me to be American. They want to know where I come from. They want to know what I believe. And so my particularity was part of being a good leader of a global company. Yeah. And I guess I would say to the Christian world or the Jewish world, the Muslim world, whatever, yes. you're, you are your strength. Like you, this is who you are. Hmm. And to rest in that with self-confidence and then to show how that plays out in the world um, is, is the beauty. I mean, you know, I was drawn to faith more by Christians than by God. I mean, I, the first steps were, wow, what a beautiful human being. Mm. Wow, St. Augustine is the most brilliant person I've ever encountered. Wow, Dorothy Day, really, you know, or, you know. And Saints. so, you're, yeah, you're like, you, you see an image of goodness and you see people who take their faith seriously. And it's super particular. Uh, and my Orthodox Jewish friends, believe me, it's very particular. And it doesn't make sense. Jews can't eat cheeseburgers. You can't mix the meat and the dairy. Crazy. <laughs> uh, but that particularity is the thing itself. Yeah. Uh, and so what I look to for the church is, A, an example of goodness. Hmm. B, the, the Beatitudes were, for me, were the, the spiritual grandeur. Yeah. They weren't just words. They're, they're, that could not have happened, what he yes. said back then, without something else. Yeah. And so that was opening up the heart. And then I find the faith, because it's built around love, is for a workaholic, emotionally avoidant culture, it's refreshingly emotional. Yeah. And to even to talk in the language of spiritual formation, you don't go to a sixth grade class in public school and people are using that language. It's right. like, we got geometry here. Yes. Um, and so that's what the world is hungering for. And to live with intentionality around that. I, I f was really surprised when I entered this world. Like I would meet a friend of my wife's. He, he was intentional at, at, they grew up, went to Wheaton. He gets 10 of his buddies. They form a giving circle. And so every year they put money into a pot and every year they gather somewhere to decide where the money's gonna give away. And the charity is nice. But the fact that through the rest of that guy's life, he's gonna have 10 friends he's gonna know from college to death. That's, there's nothing religious about that, but it's living intentionally. How do I want my life to be? Mm -hmm. And how do I want to, to serve? Who am I serving? Um, that what people are hungering for. Yeah. And even before I had no faith, I was reading a lot of Augustine or Reinhold Niebuhr or Abraham Joshua Heschel. You were interested in spiritual formation long yeah. before you were Christian. Right. You know what I mean? And the question of goodness. How do we become good? And I didn't get that from some psychology text. I got it from theolo theology, the Bible. Mm -hmm. and. You know, I got it from C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis was C.S. Yeah. Lewis to me. Um, and so I think that's the core and the strength. I gave a talk when I was just a new Christian called Ramps and Walls. And I said, the church has ramps and walls. The walls you try to beat, keep, keep us out who want to come in. Yeah. And one of the walls is invasive care. <laughs> God put it on my heart to totally invade your privacy. <laughs> uh, another wall is the combination of intellectual inferiority complex and spiritual superiority complex. Yes, lethal. 
Um, but the, 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 the ramps are spiritual knowledge. Yeah. Um, the gift of uh, just expressing love. Yeah. Uh, and I have a guy who sends me a text every Friday. He's done this for five years in a row. I told him, maybe seven years now, I told him Fridays were sad for me. Because when I left Judaism, I guess I left, I don't feel like I didn't leave, but um, I stopped having Friday night Shabbat dinner. And I miss that. Friday night Shabbat dinner is a great time. I, yes. My saying is that every church service is more spiritual than every synagogue service, mm -hmm. but every Friday night Shabbat dinner is more spiritual than every church service. Hey, we, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, we have Friday night Shabbat <laughs> yeah, dinner every week. Yeah. So. so he knew I was sad, so he, 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 every Friday night, yes. without fail, for seven years, wow. I get a text from Jerry. <laughs> and um, that's faithful friendship, that's faithful yeah. service. You know, in um, The Road to Character, I think it's in your opening chapter, or preface, I think it's the most sticky part of the whole book. You have your kind of resume virtues versus mm. what you call eulogy, eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are what our culture is built around. Where do you go to school? What's your job? Yeah. You know, what things have you done? How cool are you? How many followers do you have on Instagram? Whatever. But when we come to death, what matters is eulogy virtues. Right. And we right. talk about a very different constellation of you know, human personality traits at a funeral than we do at a right. cocktail party. Right. And even in our increasingly amoral culture, well, I'm not even sure that's true, but you know, at death, really what matters is not did you have a good life, but did you become a good person? Right. Like I've never been to a funeral where like this person just rocked it on Tinder. Yeah, you know, right. this person <laughs> knew how to eat, drink, and be merry. Right. You know, this right. person just bought a lot of toys. Right. Like you, you search for the best in that person, which normally involves some kind of self-sacrificial, generous formation right. into love. Right. And that seems to be at the center of what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, the center of what he's doing through his death, finding a way yeah. to deal with what's most deeply wrong and wicked and wounded, both right. in the human personhood and, and find a way to bring healing and salvation yeah. to it, you know? Yeah. And it's a, and it, a belief in change. Yes. Um, and I'm a poster boy that you're never too late to change. Yes. <laughs> like, um, I'll tell, I'm not going to do the total name drop, but I, 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 when you go on book tour, you interview certain people. And the, the only time you see them is when you're on book tour. And so I did an interview with this person. And then five years later, another book comes out, another interview. And this happened to me twice, but this one, I remember, she said, I've never seen someone change so much. Wow. You were so emotionally blocked before. And I was very well, proud. I guess the mm -hmm. sin of pride did come to me then. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I hope that's true. Yeah. And it's not just me. There's a study called the Grant Study, which they took, started Harvard kids in 1940, young men who were at Harvard, and they interviewed them intensely for the rest of their lives. And there may be a few still living, but pretty much. And then there's one moment, this guy, his last name was Newman. And he was stiff and rigid in college. Pretty stiff and rigid through much of life, and his daughters hated him. But he loosened up, he went to Sudan and served there. And then he became sort of a farmer, an organic farmer. And he was hugging people by the end of his life, and birds were feeding, you know, little yeah. St. Francis. And they sent him his interview transcripts from when he was in college, like 40 years before. And they just sent them to him, you might be curious. He said, he sent them back. He sent, you sent me the wrong guy's transcripts. He said, no, that's you. He said, that was not me. I don't remember any of this, that was not me. They said, no, that was you. 
And so between 20 and 80, that guy had changed so unrecognizably, he, did, he literally did not recognize his own self. Wow. And I think that just happens to us. Yeah. Mostly gradually, but sometimes all at once. Yeah. What a gift. Well, yeah. thank you for your time, for your oh, wisdom, for the role that you play and the gift you are to so many of us. We appreciate your work and we'll continue to read you and follow you. And, and uh, we're really, really grateful for your time. Good. I appreciate it. I'll see you in, someday in Portland. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to episode one of Live No Lies and my conversation with David Brooks. If you want to go deeper, I have an entire book on this and more that is out in just a few weeks on September 28th. It's called Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotaged Your Peace. I've never worked harder on a book project in my life. This is book number six, and man, it's taken a lot out of me. But it's my earnest attempt to update the ancient Christian paradigm that goes all the way back to the church fathers and mothers, the desert fathers and desert mothers, of the three enemies of the soul the world, the flesh, and the devil for our very secular and very sophisticated kind of cultural moment. I'm praying it does a lot of good in the world. It is available now for pre-order wherever books are sold. Also, if you want to watch this conversation, my interview with David, or share it with a friend, just go to YouTube, put my name in the kind of search bar there, and it should come right up. And it goes without saying, if this conversation, if this podcast was helpful to you at all, please leave us a review online or subscribe to the podcast or share this on social media or just tell a few of your family and friends. And God willing, we will be back next Wednesday with episode two and another in-depth interview with a hero of mine on Live No Lies.